This episode is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society, seeking to amplify women's stories and deepen our collective understanding of the many roles women play in history. And by our patrons, Deb Potter, Skylar Collins, Julie Gray, Robin Brown, Kim Hokinson, Janelise Cannon, Jill Harrigan, Jamie Ling, Maria Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantel Oliver, Katrina and Kristen, and Caitlin McTaggart. Thank you so much for being our sponsors. We couldn't do it without you. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Today, our tale begins 820 years ago, exactly. Ooh. Somewhere in the east of Mongolia. Ooh. Timujin, the man who would be Genghis Khan, is at his lowest point. After fighting for nearly a quarter century, his sworn friend has betrayed him. Many of his relatives have deserted him, and then he and his ever-shrinking army had to go on the run. So, we find them in 1203, wandering a part of Mongolia that they called Baljuna Waters, <laughs> and with no food left, they've eaten their last horse, and they only have one muddy lake to keep them alive. Wow. This is not the story of Genghis Khan that I've heard. It is not, and I had actually never heard it before. <laughs> this is, it looks to be the end before he has any chance to become Genghis Khan. <laughs> but what's that? On the horizon? At first, it almost looks like just a mirage. But is it a camel? <laughs> it's, no, it's a whole caravan of camels laden with goods. <laughs> Hassan. A merchant from the Ongud people, from way across the Gobi Desert, has just met his destiny. <laughs> He's traveling to trade his goods. He comes across this half-dead Mongol army. <laughs> and he made a fateful decision. He decided to share everything <laughs> with these men. <laughs> he gave it to them for free, agreeing that he would one day be repaid tenfold. Wow. So, Genghis Khan turns. At this moment of deliverance, he stares out at the lake of Baljuna waters, and he thanks the goddess of the water. In Mongol culture, lakes are the source of the divine feminine. Hmm. They're very holy. And when he and his army returned from exile, clearly by divine intervention, hmm. people just flocked to them. And that's the beginning of his great rise. Wow. And he goes, you know what? All this time I had been working in the homeland of my father, honoring the god of the mountain, and I wasn't getting anywhere. But then when I went to the land of my mother and I honored the goddess of the water, that's when everything changed. Hmm. So he has this moment of awakening. He's like, you know what's been missing from my life? A deep and profound respect for the feminine. Hmm. <laughs> so he says, I'm going to be the change. <laughs> my sons have proven themselves to be pathetic, useless cowards. <laughs> my daughters, on the other hand, my daughters are the future. <laughs> And he was not wrong. Without the daughters of Genghis Khan, there would have been no Mongol Empire. Wow. Uh, yay? 
Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether to be excited about that. <laughs> ah. Just wait till you hear. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's not the story that you think you know hmm. about the Mongol Empire. Not at all. Hmm. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Thanks to the miracle of modern technology, I was able to speak to Jack Weatherford, <gasps> eminent anthropologist, wow. an author of tons of books of Mongolian yeah. history, including The Secret History of the Mongol Queens, oh. which I absolutely love. He was long a professor of anthropology in the U.S., <laughs> then he retired to Mongolia, and in a strange twist, he's now resident in Cambodia. Huh. I am Jack Weatherford. I am from uh, South Carolina, from the little town of Dozville, South Carolina. For 29 years, I was anthropology professor at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, but I am now a resident of Cambodia and also Mongolia. I feel very blessed. They're two wonderful countries. I have lived there for 20-some years, and anthropology is my field. I still love it. I still do it. I'm now 77 years old, but I still enjoy it. And his book is so good. It's just so lyrically written, and it's just packed full of so many amazing things. Hmm. And actually, last year, Jack Weatherford was awarded the Order of Genghis Khan, which is the highest honor in Mongolia. Wow. But he also remains just grounded and kind and uh, just a lovely human being. Wow. I have not studied anything about Asian history as a student. It was just not a part of my world. And then I stumbled into it much later in life. And so my approach to everything is just as a student approaching something rather than as an expert. So everything I say has to be taken with a certain amount of skepticism because I'm also very biased. I like to just present the things that I believe not to try to present other people's arguments if I don't believe them. So I'm a little self-centered in that way, but I truly believe everything I say. So I began with asking, how do we pronounce these names? Well, I'll do the best I can, but don't worry. Mongolian language, uh, the pronunciation really is quite different from uh, almost any other language I know. For example, what we say in English usually is a lot of people say Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan. I tend to say Genghis Khan, but the actual Mongolian is C-H, Chinggis, Chinggis. And it's a long hang, Chinggis hang. Well, I'm not going to say that every time in English. So I just generally say Genghis Khan. But sometimes I slip and I say it another way. And uh, uh, we are fortunate that uh, a lot of the Mongol queens have easier names, such as Altani, Alakai, Anu. It's a little bit easier. We just make do. I think the, the main thing about pronunciation is to understand the idea behind it or the meaning uh, more important than could we getting it exactly right in the original language. Because mm -hmm. sometimes if you get it exactly right in the original language, it sounds so strange in English, people will never remember it. Now, unusually, this episode is about four sisters. The four de facto rulers of the Mongol Empire. Hmm. But because we can't know enough about any one individual, I've opted to talk about them all together. Okay. Plus, they also represented the cardinal directions of the empire because they were ruling over north, south, east, and west. And hmm. so I feel like taking them together is the right thing to do. Yeah. 
So, how do we get four women ruling over the four regions of what would become the largest land empire in the history of the world? Yeah. <laughs> and how have none of us ever heard of them? Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. You won't you won't believe it. I think the important thing to know is that women of the steppe tribes for a long time had had a very prominent position. It wasn't like so-called civilized society or, or agricultural people because the women were in charge of the camps. So the women ran everything. And that was already a very strong tradition. And so Chinggis Khan himself, he was raised with an extremely strong mother. She had been kidnapped from her first husband by the man who became Chinggis Khan's father. She had survived that. She was a strong woman. So Chinggis Khan was raised by her. She had her children, and then her husband was killed by the Tatars, and she was cast out. The tribe cast her away because she was only a kidnapped woman. She was not a legally married, properly married woman. They threw her and her children out to die. She somehow survived. It's, it's so dramatic. She ran up and down the river night and day with her black stick digging up roots to feed her brood. So Chinggis Khan grew up with a mother like that. They were outcasts living on their own. He grew up knowing what women could do. There was no question in his mind. And that's a long tradition, long before he became a conqueror, and then he began to give responsibility. Uh, in fact, some to his mother and some to his wife, but mostly to his daughters. His mother was always there for him, very involved in his life. She helped raise his children. He had like at least eight boys and eight girls, maybe more. Yes, the number is unclear, in part because the Mongolian kinship system is a little bit different. And so many people that we might call a niece could be called a daughter for them, or even a granddaughter could be called a daughter for them. So it's often very difficult to the best clue for me, actually, is looking at foreign records, which tend to talk about sons-in-law. Mm. And so that's often my key into finding out who this is. Their lifestyle is nomadic. They lived in gurs, which is what Westerners call yurts, mm. which could easily move with the seasons. The gur was and is still the realm, the property of the woman in the relationship. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really cool anthropological details he includes, like that it's covered in thick layers of felt that the women have hammered out by hand. Hmm. You know, they felted the wool. Um, and that actually came to be a sort of, the felt is like imbued with the spirit of the woman who hmm. built that house. And it's so cool. The original felt, they call it the mother felt. And from the mother felt, over subsequent years, they will add on little bits and little bits, and those are called the daughter felts. Huh. And those are passed on from generation to generation. So literally the walls of the home are the generations of women wow. who have come before. So cool. Wow. And they had designated areas of the gur. So the east side is the women's side by custom, and the west side is the male side. Anyone can enter a gur as a guest, as long as when they enter, they just stand quietly on the west side and just wait to be acknowledged. <laughs> well, one day, Genghis Khan's mother, Holan, she's in her gur, and she's got her young granddaughter, Altani, and her youngest grandson, 
Tolui. And in Mongol tradition, the youngest son, he's sort of the spirit bearer of the whole clan. They call him the Prince of Fire. And Tolui is just four years old, he's running around. Suddenly, an assassin from the Mongols' old enemies, the Tatars, comes into the Gur, grabbed the boy, and ran out the door. Altani, the young girl, his sister, bolted after him. And well, the kidnapper had a knife to the throat of the child and was running away, and she ran she out. She grabbed him by his braids <laughs> and like hurled herself up on top of him. And she grabbed that one arm with the knife and held it down so that he couldn't strike the child. <laughs> She's just this small how, little girl. How old is she? We don't know for sure, but 10? Wow. He's trying to throw her off so that he can get a hold of his arms again and kill this boy. And she's just hanging on for dear life. That's all she can do. She would not let go. And finally, hearing the commotion, two warriors come running up. Then two men came rushing up with an axe. And they hack the guy down. And then they claim credit for saving him. And congratulate themselves like, hooray, we have saved the Prince of Fire. <laughs> Chinggis Han said, no, she is the hero of this. She is the one who saved his life because she stopped the knife. Altani is the hero here. And he held her up as a model for everyone to follow. Wow. The spirit that this young woman displayed is what we want in our empire. Wow. In the book he writes about, from the Mongol perspective, difficulties choose us. Hmm. If you act in the moment when destiny comes to test you, then you are a batar, B-A-A-T-A-R. Hmm. Batar. It's often translated as hero, but it's way more important of a word than hero. Hmm. It's like more than courage, too. So often people will be paralyzed by fear, yeah. Or paralyzed even by indecision in the moment. Yeah. And you don't act. But if in that moment you act, like without even thinking about it, you are heroic. That's the highest spirit of a person, according to the Mongols. Hmm. His daughters would all prove themselves batar. Hmm. And his sons would not. Not a single one. <laughs> he built his whole worldview on the concept of the batar and on the concept of reverence for the feminine. Hmm. And you wouldn't think it, right? Because the Mongol world is so famously violent. And yeah, like a very male-dominated narrative Yeah, is, yeah. is the one we've been told. And the story that is in the history books is the story of the conquest. Hmm. But that's just one aspect of it, which is really only the opening chapter. And then we say, and then they ruled for centuries. Yeah. But how did they rule for centuries? Yeah. Like, that's a completely different thing. Yeah from conquering people. Yeah, that's because we the Mongols are an adventure story for us. Yeah. And ruling yeah. is boring. We don't care. Uh, the rule, no. But it's yeah. the conquering that is the story. Jack Weatherford describes this. His sentence to describe the Mongol culture at that point is that it's a world of perpetual low-grade hostility <laughs> interrupted by spasms of amazing violence and destruction. <laughs> that really was the world that Genghis Khan was raised in hmm. and the world that he lived in to his dying day. But one of the things he exports 
everywhere he goes is this respect for, this like deep reverence for women. <laughs> like at his daughter's weddings. Let's get to the wedding scene, shall we? On to the wedding. the gathering of gatherings it's 1206 all the clans of the north asian steppe have come together to confirm temujin the great khan the Genghis khan <laughs> it was this massive crowd of incredible diversity feasting and celebrating for weeks and it also included weddings where Genghis khan's daughters married great lords of distant lands <laughs> so now we get to meet them. Let's meet them in turn at their witness their weddings and see the destiny that is laid before them. Awesome. The amazing thing is we have written sources not just about the weddings, but the content of Genghis Khan's speeches at said weddings <laughs> and at this gathering of all gatherings first he has some declarations to make <clears throat> I Genghis Khan hereby outlaw the bartering of women for livestock or other goods <laughs> that was a common practice at the time <laughs> but wait you said women were held equal to men in his mind okay and in the world that he and his he daughters created. are going to build okay yes right. yeah then he says women should not engage in sex before they are at least age 16 and when they are ready they initiate with their husbands that's the law oh. further upon pain of death women cannot be seized raped kidnapped or sold wow this is the new future of the mongol empire we're going to have male and female exist in balance and harmony wow that is not the genghis khan of the movies no it certainly <laughs> is not it is not he meant it and the mongols enforced it wow <laughs> now let's begin the wedding rituals raise your glass of fermented mare's milk Oh, yum. A Mongol woman wears her hair bound up on top of her head and she cakes it with animal fat to prevent lice. Ew. And for their weddings, they probably wore felt headdresses that are like two feet high. <laughs> All Mongol women want to make their uh, foreheads look larger and mm. so they smear it with like a yellow makeup. <laughs> the men would have their heads shaved except for a tuft of bangs right in the front of their head yeah and two patches above their ears <laughs> and they let that hair grow really long and braid it amazing yeah it's awesome we don't know the names of the grooms ah. because they were so unimportant <laughs> <laughs> the the Becky, the princesses, Becky, B-E-K-I, 
They're the important ones, and they are not at all going to become absorbed into their husbands' identities. In fact, it's going to be quite the reverse. Their husbands dissolve into the women's identities. Wow. Each princess would stand in front of her new gur, and they place on her head that tall uh, crown-like, you know, like two-foot-tall headpiece. <laughs> they put on all her jewelry. She walks between two holy fires to get to her gur. And it's kind of like a short and sweet ceremony. They're married. And then for eight days afterwards, people bring them gifts. And on the eighth day, they have a huge feast. That's awesome. So let's put all four daughters into one big feast, just in our minds, <laughs> and watch as the princesses set off to their destinies. First, we have Chechegan. Chechegan, which means flower. It's a very delicate name, but very popular still today in Mongolia, that name. And Genghis Khan says, Chechegan, come forward. You are sent to govern over the far north. He, he makes no mention of her husband at all. <laughs> he doesn't make any mention of any other leader. She is it. She has been sent to govern. And he <laughs> says, you should organize the Oirat people and control them. Your words must show your wisdom. And then his personal advice to her. Be sincere always. Maintain your soul. Get up early and go to bed late. So, off we send Chechegan. She is going to be the queen of the people of the north. The frozen wilds of what the Mongols called Cyber, which becomes Siberia. Siberia, yeah. Now it's Alakai's turn. A-L-A-Q-U-A-I. <laughs> she will marry into the royal family of the Ongud, who are the people whose merchant, Hassan, saved Genghis Khan in his oh. darkest hour. He didn't forget. He built a strong alliance with the Ongud people. And he sends his daughter to be their queen. <laughs> she's actually going to be his main military support because she's taking on a really strategically important role on the other side of the Gobi Desert in mm. northern China. He knows the risks of sending her so far away to rule over those people. So he tells her, Although there are many things you should cherish, none is more valuable than your own life. No one should be closer to you than your own wise heart. Hmm. Be prudent, be steadfast, be courageous. You have to remember that life is short, but fame is everlasting. <laughs> <laughs> Her job is to build a government from scratch. Oh, and did I mention that the Mongols had only had written language for two years? <laughs> and they'd only been a nation for 20 years. So she has to so learn to read learn to and read. write. Yeah, first learn to read. Yeah. Wow. And then go and build a nation from scratch while you are also going up against all the like infamous bureaucrats of China and the Middle yeah. East and the oh, Islamic geez. world. With three months of, of uh -huh. language acquisition. <laughs> Yes. Also, she's probably 19. Wow. <laughs> and China's not going to be super impressed by a girl. No, you're exactly right. And the Islamic world is going to be profoundly offended by mm. a girl existing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Next, he turns to Al Altoon. A-L-A-L-T-U-N. Al Altoon. She is going to marry into the Uyghurs to the south. Mm. The Uyghurs, they occupied basically like a series of oases in the middle of the desert, and they're surrounded <laughs> by defensive walls. His message to her is that she's going to be the communications center of the empire from that strategic position in the central south on the Silk Road. She's basically going to run the Silk Road. Hmm. And so to Al Altoon, he says. But he did not say, I give you to this man. He said very clearly, I give you three husbands. I give you your nation. I give you your name and honor. And I give you this man. And the importance is in that order. <laughs> oh, he was very clear. Uh, wait, so communication center also with two years of written language. Indeed, yes. You're going to be in charge of conveying messages across the largest land empire in the history of the world <laughs> with whatever system you can come up with. <laughs> wow. How did he conquer all of this with no written language? How is he communicating uh, huh? with any of his generals or his... Yeah. What? You can't gonna... send a note to anyone to go, hey, no. like attack from the left. No, he believes notes are dangerous. And even once he assigns his daughter to be the, the communication center of the empire, he's like, I will not be sending notes. I will be sending guys. Oh, I guess that's it. They will speak a message, but also it's going to be coded. So it's going to be a message that is a poem that is deeply metaphorical. And you decode that and then send it on. <laughs> wow. Easy. Easy peasy. <laughs> Finally, the fourth queen. So we've got the other three cardinal directions. We've got north, east, south. So this fourth daughter, she is sent to the west. She is a mystery in that none of the surviving sources tell us her name. Hmm. <laughs> So it could have been Altani, the one who rescued her youngest brother. Mm. But we can't say for sure. The Persians give us the name Temelun, but they might actually be mixing that up because that's Genghis Khan's sister's name. So there's mm. no telling for sure. So we'll call her Daughter of the West. Mm. But in my mind, she's Altani. I think Of it's course. Yeah. So Daughter of the West, <coughs> Altani. To the West are the Snow Lords, that's their literal name, <laughs> the Karluk Turks. And she married Arslan Khan. Arslan means lion. Yeah. All you lovers of Narnia. Aslan. He is Arslan Khan. He's the Lion King. <laughs> she married him. But in that wedding ceremony, Genghis Khan took Khan off of his name. <laughs> Because he said, he cannot be the Khan. My daughter is going to be the cartoon, the queen. Uh. So we got to make clear they are not <laughs> equals. She is in charge. Wow. <laughs> so she is sent back west to rule over a Muslim population and guard basically the gateway to the Islamic world. Wow. So this is a job that these ladies are undertaking. <laughs> They're four very different sisters, handed four very different destinies to build an empire from scratch, ruling over a mind-boggling diversity of 
people. Hmm. Which one would you choose? Which one is most of your vibe if you were going to be um, southeast or west? Well, not north, because it's cold. I'm inclined to go to Bibi Sahiba's Muslim intellectual oh. center. That's my jam. Yeah. I mean, they've got the best medicine in the world at the time, too. Yeah, so I might stay um, alive and read a lot of books. In that region, they're kind of obsessed with the Crusades, which are happening oh, yeah. at the same time. But you're, you'd be far enough away. Yeah, just read all the books. Yeah. I, I might I might like to go and run the Silk Road and just see all the stuff from everywhere. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Going. Borte, their mother. She sends them off to their destinies with a, with a kind of beautiful, poignant ritual. The Secret History of the Mongol Queens by Jack Weatherford. The departure from home was simple for Alakai and each sister, leaving her mother's gur for a new life far away. The mother and daughter stood in front of the gur, and the daughter presented first her right cheek and then her left so that her mother might sniff each one in the traditional kiss of the Mongols. This sniff would help the mother to remember the smell of the child until they met again. Sometimes the mother declined to sniff the second cheek, saying, I will sniff the left one when you return. So great is the power of words that by saying it and visualizing it happening, the mother hoped to ensure that they would meet again. When the daughter mounted her horse to ride away, she did not look back at the gur of her past, but had to stare straight ahead into the future. Borta, like any Mongol mother, watched her daughter ride away, but never shed a tear. A Mongol mother was never supposed to cry in the presence of her child. Of all the fluids from a mother's body, tears were the most dangerous. The mother's blood gave life to the infant growing in the womb, and her milk nourished the baby after birth. Her saliva moistened the food that the mother chewed and put into the child's mouth, and she used her urine to wash and sterilize her offspring's wounds. The tears of a mother, however, contained dangerous power. No matter how great the pain the mother felt, she could not shed them in the presence of the child for fear of causing future harm. Instead of crying, the mother performed an ancient ritual of the steppe. She brought out a pail of milk, and as her child rode away, she stood before the door of her gur and threw milk into the air with a tsatsal, a wooden instrument resembling a large perforated spoon. With an upward and outward toss of her right arm, the mother waved the tsatsal and aspersed the milk into the air until her child passed out of her sight. The milk constituted a special prayer, and it carried the hope that the mother could pour out a white road ahead of her child. Once her daughter passed beyond the horizon, the mother put down her pail of milk, and then after walking far away from her gur and her family, she lay face down on the earth and cried her pain and her tears onto the ground. Mother Earth always understood the sorrow of a mother and would hide her tears. As long as her children remained away from her, the Mongol mother came out every morning with her pail and satsal to sprinkle milk in the direction of each one of them and any other family member away from home. The satsal ritual located the family in space and in relation to one another, and its simultaneously established geographic location, spiritual connection, and social orientation.
This season of What's Her Name is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society. Think you know Utah history? Think again. The Women's History Initiative highlights Utah's dynamic history makers. Eight sovereign nations in Utah since time immemorial, pioneers, explorers, immigrants, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and dreamers who have made a home there ever since. Join the Society to read the Utah Historical Quarterly, attend free virtual events, and get news about the future Museum of Utah. Visit history.utah.gov UWH to learn more. And the long-awaited statue of what's-her-name favorite Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon will be installed in the National Statuary Hall collection at the U.S. Capitol within the next few months, just the 13th woman featured in the hall. Follow at Utah State History on Instagram to catch Martha on the move as she makes her journey to D.C. And teachers at all levels can find all kinds of curriculum resources on their website, history.utah.gov UWH. The men just do war. That's what they do, war. But these Mongol queens, they're about to set up sedentary kingdoms. Hmm. The man went off to war with Chinggis Han, and the daughter was left there to rule. So it was quite an unusual system. The sons-in-law being off at war tended to die at a higher rate. And so then often she would go through a couple of different husbands during her time uh, administering that area. So, how did they fare? Who do you want to know about first? Well, the wilds of Siberia sounds terrifying, so... Okay, let's see what happened. Chicha Yigen. She had the roughest life of all, in a way, because she was married to the Oirat, who were a forest people, very, very simple and primitive. The Mongols needed something to trade on the global scene because weirdly nobody is interested in fermented mare's milk. I can't imagine so why. So weird. So her role is to dominate Siberia and exploit its natural resources for the Mongol Empire. Send all of that stuff south to her sister mm-hmm. who is running the Silk Road. Yeah. Sable pelts, tiger skins, wolf skins, bear claws, elk horns, reindeer, ibex, sheep, um, lots of feathers from cranes and tundra swans. Hmm. Uh, Horses didn't even survive that far north. So they are getting around on dog sleds uh, or sleighs pulled by reindeer. This is, of course, the Narnia. Yeah, I was going to say. This is the Snow Queen of the North. They lived in bark tents. This is a wild life. Yeah, no, that's not for me. I left the American Midwest because it was too cold. I'm not going to Siberia. (laughs) Don't think you can handle Siberia. (laughs) Chichigan, she produced a whole bunch of daughters of her own, and she very, very cleverly married them to all the different branches of the Chinggis Han family. And so she set up this network that stretched all across Inner Asia. And later, they became extremely important in helping to run the empire. They set up this network of communication among these sisters that had a a great 
impact in the empire by the time of her daughters and granddaughters were in power. All right, who do you want to know about next? Uh, well, my girl over in the intellectual center. Oh, yeah. Daughter of the West. Cosmopolitan City. <laughs> Let's go there. Oh, boy. It did not pan out how you think. Uh-oh. <laughs> the story is very simple. With uh, Chinggis Khan, he's always fighting with his, with his sons-in-law. They're always with him. But sometimes the daughters also came. Uh, they would uh, often come to run the camp or for various reasons. And in one case, when they were in what is now northern Iran, he gave command of the army to his daughter. Her husband was there, Aslan. He is standing up on the ramparts when he was hit by an arrow. The son-in-law was killed. She raged. All this is based upon uh, Persian and Arab sources. None of this is based upon Mongolian sources. But uh, we do, I certainly do believe this story. She led the forces in, and then in the end, she had everybody in the city slaughtered uh, for having killed her husband and also for having rebelled against her father. Wow. The whole area around there? Yeah, or? yeah. The whole Ooh. the whole city. Every, every living thing plants and, like, erasure. Whoa. Cats and dogs and everything. Whoa. But... The fact that the people were fighting against the Mongols already had sort of condemned them. If they fight against the Mongols, the Mongols will destroy them when they win. I think the story is more negative than it probably needs to be or should be, because I think that especially in the Muslim world, there was great animosity I should say the Muslim and the Christian world, because the same in, in Russia, great animosity towards the women in power among the Mongols. And some of the other people, the Turkic people, did not mind it so much, for example, but certainly the Persians and the Arabs and the Russians, they greatly resented it. And they tended to cast these women as extremely vicious and evil, or in the case of Russia, to categorize them as witches. The Muslim cities suffered the most and gained the least from the Mongol Empire. Mm. And there's actually a reason that historians don't talk much about these cities. That's because the Mongols erased them off the face of the earth. There is nothing for historians or archaeologists to work with. They raised it to the ground. So (laughs) the, the result for the rest of the world was something radical because poof, those Islamic centers on the Silk Road are gone. And suddenly the whole of the Silk Road became a Mongol highway. For the first time in thousands of years, one nation controlled the Silk Road end to end from Northern China, all across Central Asia, down the Indus River and West all the way to the Mediterranean. They control all of it. So goods are flowing from the Arctic Circle to the Indian Ocean, from China (laughs) to the Mediterranean. It's crazy. And after they gained control of it all, they applied their laws 
to it. They said mm. no women chattel. There should be no seizure, no human trafficking, no rape. We're going to guarantee safety and security. All of the infrastructure is in place now so that traders don't have to risk life and limb crossing the Silk Road. Mm. And now it's perfectly safe, even for women. Wow. Global economic boom because of this. Who do you want to know about next? Uh, south. Let's just go around the circle. Okay. South, we're at the communication center, that impossible job of all Altoon. Hmm. Basically, the Empire is going to rise or fall based on her organizational skills. Yeah. This ain't no Pony Express. It's just a chain. It's like telephone. It's the most yeah. epic game of telephone that ever happened. <laughs> and every message is memorized and delivered by word of mouth. So mm. what she does is she trains up a, a whole crew of messengers whose job is to be able to decode all the poems mm. through rhetoric and poetry. <laughs> Amazing. And people say literature degrees are meaningless. <laughs> I mean, that was the era of poetry, if ever there was yeah. one. Like, <laughs> rhyming poems with secret military yeah. messages. This is how we save the humanities. We convince them that <laughs> yeah. it's useful for military operations. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that the largest contiguous empire in the history of the world was established by poetry? And it was run by poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Uyghur script became Mongol script mm. under Al Altun. It remained the main script of the Mongol language until 1911. Wow. Like, that is an impact. Yeah. She's also at the epicenter of the Silk Road. Global trading network. Yeah. Totally unmatched and unprecedented everywhere. Okay, imagine being a Mongolian. Um, your life has consisted of yaks milk mare's <laughs> milk and meat like that's your diet if you mm -hmm. even if you wanted to grow vegetables on the north asian steppe you can't it's so yeah. high elevation you, you don't have any real sources of food so mm -hmm. we're gonna do a quiz okay there are certain items that to a mongolian have no appeal whatsoever no interest um so i'm gonna give you the list of the main products that are coming through her capital city uh and i want you to try to pick out the six that a average Mongolian person would have no interest in whatsoever, okay? <laughs> you have six to choose from this list of, I don't know, maybe 20. Okay. okay. Chopsticks, silk, combs, porcelain bowls, pearls, compasses, spices, coral, string instruments, sugar, ivory, perfume, Iron pots, books and scrolls, flint, camel wool, bamboo, silver bowls. Sugar. Sugar? Why? Why do you pick that? Because that whole region still does not like sugar. So I'm just oh. going based on the fact Ding, ding, ding. You are correct. Living in northern China, they were like, what is this? What is the matter with you? Yes. Okay. You're one for one. Um, what, pearls? No, because who very cares? interested in pearls. Oh, nice right. try. Um, one for two. Oh, yeah, chopsticks. Why? Useless for eating 
chunks of meat or yak's milk. Like, why do you need them? And you're right. Ding, 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 ding. Correct. Um, let's see. Silver. Silver bowls. Oh, they love silver bowls. They actually believe them to have magical powers imbuing whatever you eat out of it with mm. healing properties and kind of like they like mercury, you know, like they think yeah. it's just it's <laughs> going to imbue it with this magic silverness that's going to save you. Yeah. So silver bowls, very popular. Except the silver probably actually would help and the mercury will kill you. Um, yeah. Well, silk seems like the one that it certainly can't be. So it makes me think it is. Mm. No, they did love silk. But yeah. Miraculously soft. Yeah. Books and scrolls because they barely know how to read, but maybe they're more excited about it. No, you're right. No interest in books and scrolls. Porcelain. Porcelain is useless if you're traveling all the time because you're going to break it. And you're right about that, too. Bing, bing, bing. Yes. Traveling all the time. You don't take porcelain camping. Exactly. It's not going to survive. Silver. Yes. I am so smart. The only other one that you (laughs) didn't get... I mean, you are so smart. Flint? Because they already know how to start fires? I don't know. They do love flint. Apparently, it's great because it's way faster than the method they used before. Bamboo? Bamboo, also miraculous. Cheap, light. Yeah. Yes. It floats, but it's solid. It's amazing. But what they have no interest in and don't understand whatsoever is perfume. Oh. Because in Mongol culture, everybody has like their own distinct smell. It would be so confusing to change your smell. Uh, and frequently, if you change it to something that smells lovely, then you just attract a zillion bugs. Uh, so nobody is interested. And in or perfume. wolves. Yeah. Um, they also are uninterested in spices, which is fascinating. Oh, I thought for sure with meat. Yeah. But they still just prefer their plain roasted meat with nothing on it. Hmm. They don't want to change the flavor of it. All right. So, I mean, and that's a money saver right there since spices are literally worth their weight in gold. Yeah, but imagine, like, having access to Indian food and going, nah. I know. No, not going to have that curry. Yeah, that's, that's a bold I'll move. never understand. Last but not least, Alakai. She took a great white road across the Gobi Desert (laughs) to get to her new land. In good conditions, the crossing took six weeks, but that's if you had the very best possible six weeks in the fall, (laughs) where in the previous year there had been a lot of rain so that the grass had grown (laughs) along the way. I have been in a Gobi Desert sandstorm before, and it is not not to mess around with, I will say that. Ah. Waking up to half an inch of orange sand inside your house. Uh, When were you in the Gobi Desert? Beijing gets the Gobi Desert sandstorms still. So we got the tail end of a Gobi Desert sandstorm, and it was still terrifying to wake up and go, what happened? In my 21st century, you know, sealed up, Mm. you know, glass and cinder block house, sand everywhere. Wow. She takes this epic trek across a desert to get to her new homeland, 
where then she's like, all right, step one, learn to read. <laughs> step two, study all forms of government. <laughs> step three, decide how I'm going to build my own. Her kingdom, on Good Kingdom, it's uh, at the intersection of the Mongols, the Turks, and the Chinese. Wow. In like northern China. She was up against all of that intellectual challenges. She's 20 years old. <laughs> she is sort of intellectually one of my favorites in that I think that she was a very scholarly person. The envoys who came from the South Song Dynasty, the Chinese envoys, they were amazed that this woman was there. They came to see the men, and, and there's this woman, and they recorded some information about her that helps us a lot. And one of the amazement was that she reads and writes all the time. And it wasn't a world where they were accustomed to women reading and writing. And she was also always served as the supreme judge of her country, as well as everything else. She was very concerned with the law. So she's a very special one. I see her in a very intellectual way. Then, I mean, she's doing her very best. She looks in the, at the Islamic world and she's like, well, all of their laws are based on the Quran. I don't think that's going to work for us. Mm. She looks to China and she goes, wow, that is incredibly elaborately bureaucratic. Also, they're very heavy on the scribe. Yeah. I don't think that is going to work for us either. So nothing that exists is going to work for her. She has to make up her own government, her own way forward. Mm. And while she's trying to do that, her dad and his stupid freaking army <laughs> moves through the Gobi Desert. <laughs> and like the reason that he positioned her there is so that after he crosses the Gobi Desert with his army, they have some recoup time. <laughs> her job is to provide his army with all the supplies they need and the food and a place to recover from their epic journey. Like for months, they will yeah. recoup there because they almost die every time they go through the Gobi <laughs> Desert. And his army is 100,000 strong. <laughs> So you can imagine the cost to the local population yeah. and the resentment of the local people. Yeah. Perhaps unsurprisingly then, her people rebelled. <laughs> and it was a spectacularly violent attack. Mm. She barely escaped with her life, but she is a Batar after all. <laughs> she probably in the moment had that spirit of survival. Genghis Khan sends an army. He's going to do the usual I will erase this place off of planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And Alakai stopped him. <laughs> Just leave him alone. Just let him be. You can see why they were so mad. Mm -hmm. And he finally agreed, if she named the masterminds behind the attack, that he would only eliminate the masterminds. It's the only time that a people rebelled against the Mongol Empire and lived to tell the tale. Wow. And it's all because of her. Of course, if you come in as an enemy, you really do not know these people. And there's a tendency sometimes to want to kill everyone mm -hmm. if you're just afraid of all of them. And it's the same today in modern warfare. We go into a strange country, you don't know who is who. But by having the daughter there and having her ruling the people, then these daughters, they understood better the dynamics of what's going on inside. And it's never the case that everybody rebels or everybody is wrong or everybody is against you. And so these daughters, they served as a moderating influence. I mean, the Mongols, there was a certain amount of fear with so few Mongols out combating such huge armies in such a strange and 
perceivably hostile world. But the women helped to ameliorate that greatly. So it was a very important function that they provided. It was diplomatic, political, and commercial. After that, after she had defended them against her own father, mm. she won their loyalty and they built a mutual trust and her people were 100% with her from then on. She is the mother of the people we know today as uh, Kublai Khan and also of Huligu Khan who ruled uh, Baghdad in Central Asia. She had this whole network, two of her daughters-in-law were the daughters of Tzetzigan, the woman who had been married to the Oirat king. So they had this group of women, they networked together. So Russia, China, Central Asia were united by these women. Conquering is difficult, but building a stable, successful government mm -hmm. is even more difficult. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's tons of conquerors through history. There's very few people who successfully created something. Yes, exactly. And I'm especially impressed by Alikai. Her capital had Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, and Taoist institutions, hmm. all in one capital city. She built her own worldview and her personal religion from all these possible options. She's sort of creating this global cosmopolitan world hmm. and she's the one who says we are going to guarantee the same right for everyone in the mongol empire you can believe whatever you want you can speak whatever language you want you can do whatever you want hmm. so long as you obey these few key laws of the mongol empire so the sisters between the four of them constantly working together. They built a global trade network that benefited almost everyone that it touched. <laughs> it was a new world based on security and safety, including safety for women, <laughs> a fast and reliable flow of goods and information. This is like, like Heifer International. Yeah, like these are like fair trade women's yeah. organizations that are... Yeah, they're giving it an economic outlet for women who make stuff. Yeah. Now they have a global market for it that is guaranteed secure. <laughs> it's amazing. Here's another quote from the book. With the aid of his daughters and his mighty army, Genghis Khan accomplished what Alexander the Great had attempted hmm. and failed to do. What the Romans, Arabs, and Chinese had only dreamed of achieving. Russia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Afghanistan, northern China, all of Mongolia, uh, the Caucasus, Georgia, and uh, Azerbaijan, a part of Persia, all the way into Ukraine, Belarus, uh, Poland, but all this, this huge area ruled. So, why don't we know about that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's how, how? How have we never heard of these people? The chapter was literally cut out. The most important document in all of Mongolian history is what we call in English the secret history of the Mongols. It was written just within two years of the death of Genghis Khan because he had not allowed 
anything to be written like that in his lifetime. But it's a very personal story, and it, as the name implies, the secret history was only for the family to read. It was not published until the Ming Dynasty, a hundred years later, and it was published in a coded form. So I use this over and over. And one of the good things about it is each part was numbered. So we have this sequence going through. And then you get a feel for how long each sequence should be and what's in each sequence and why one follows the other. And you get to 215, section 215. The first few times I didn't notice because it was just a, not even a whole sentence correctly. Really, it was just a partial sentence. And now let us reward our daughters. Well, okay, what happened to the rest of that section? But the longer I studied the document, the more perplexed I became, and then the confusion turned into a little bit of anger. It's like, who had the right to do this? Who could chop this out? Who had the right to deprive us of knowing about them? Who had the right to deprive them of being known in the world? And I looked at the various translations of it and decipherments of those words, and often it was translated not as, now let us reward our daughters, as, now let us give our daughters in marriage. Oh my God, that's a totally different concept. That is not the same thing. Rewarding my daughter is not the same as giving her in marriage. You, it's Here it all is, and then suddenly you get to 2.15, and it's, and now let us reward our daughters, end. I just had to know. I had to know. And so I started searching everything I could to find out about those daughters. Who were they? Like you say, you know, people know about Mongolia. I also had been studying Mongolia for some time and living there for some time. And I had never even heard these names. Never. Wow. The sons... Uh, I was going to say... Perhaps, predictably, they were the ones who commissioned the history, and they were the ones who, slowly, over the next three generations, uh, crushed the life out of all powerful women. I think that once the Mongols took over areas of Russia, Central Asia, the Middle East, and China, all of these were was a patrilineal systems in which power mostly passed from father to son. And the Mongolian system did not fit well. And at first, it survived shortly. So their, we'd say their nephews or grandnephews, began taking over their territory. But by the third generation after Chinggis Khan, the grandsons had taken over most of the territory. As I say, there are still individual women who rise to power but they're losing their independence to rule these various smaller areas. Uh, <laughs> that's annoying. Yes. Just keeps happening over and over again. It's what the Romans did everywhere they went. So hey, you don't have to listen to women. Frustrating. Just must be so easy to embrace that. Oh, yeah, it's very easy anytime someone tells you that you're definitely better than other people to believe them yeah <laughs> but what you what what you need to do in that moment what we all should do in that moment is see if we have the spirit of a <laughs> 
Do we have a spirit of a true hero who will take action and do the bold, brave thing, <laughs> no matter what cost to ourselves? Genghis Khan said, my daughters have it, <laughs> and my sons do not. Maybe if he just would have been slightly less mean to his sons. Maybe. They wouldn't would have, have been like, you guys have it too. You do too. Yeah. Wouldn't have been Who so knows? mad at their sisters. So horrible. They really turned into monsters. Mm-hmm. But let's let's end it on a, as positive a note as we can. <laughs> With this quote. In their lifetime, they could not be ignored. But when they left the scene, history closed the door behind them and let the dust of centuries cover their tracks. <laughs> Never before or since have women exercised so much power over so many people and ruled so much territory for so long <laughs> as these women did. Yeah. That's incredible. In our history, we just think of Mongols for conquest. We never think of them as having laws or as doing any good in the world or as presiding over peace. We miss these women entirely for several different reasons. So much was lost. Now I'm very happy to say that, you know, I wasn't trying to make a definitive work, but just to get the name out there, and now more information starts to come available. So I'm very happy with that. Very, very happy. special thanks to Jack Weatherford for uncovering the story of these Mongol princesses and sharing it with us. You can find his book, The Secret History of the Mongol Queens, on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, where we will also link to a lot of the music that we used in this episode, which was composed and performed by unnamed folk groups in Mongolia and female throat singers. Also, Arzin Chin, Doug Maxwell, Jesse Gallagher, Aaron Kenny, and Daniel Foster Smith. Thank you so much for donating. Thanks for listening. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs>